Welcome to the Upbeat Podcast, powered by CoachArt, a show that's dedicated to providing resources for families impacted by childhood chronic illness. For articles, videos, and show notes, visit our platform at theupbeat.coachart.org. Hi, everybody. This is Greg, host of the Upbeat Podcast, powered by CoachArt. Uh, CoachArt is a nonprofit organization that does free arts and athletics for any child impacted by any chronic illness, currently in LA, the Bay Area, and San Diego, and looking to expand to new cities over the next few years. Um, our guest today is the stand-up magician, Derek Hughes. Uh, Derek has performed his magic, oh, look at that, uh, on MTV, VH1, Comedy Central, The CW's Penn & Teller Fool Us, and The Ellen DeGeneres Show. He's a consulting producer on True TV's hit magic series, The Carbonero Effect, and was a finalist on season 10 of NBC's America's Got Talent. Uh, I've known Derek for a few years socially, and it wasn't until I reached out to him to participate in our Coach Art Gala that I found out that he actually would have qualified for Coach Art as a child. Uh, Derek was born prematurely with an atrial septal defect, which was a hole between two chambers of his heart. Uh, so we wanted to have him on the upbeat to talk about his childhood experience, how he has overcome it to become the huge success that he is today and ask him some stories about his experience so thank you for joining us derek thanks greg it's an honor it's a pleasure that was a that was a cool moment when we were talking about the gala and you know just the the potency and power of maybe having some magic be a part of that event and when my childhood circumstances and my own journey towards healing came up how how perfect and exciting that uh that moment was for both of us that was cool Absolutely. And, and I want to ask you, obviously, some questions about that experience. But one thing that I was curious about, you know, I know that you told the story on America's Got Talent, but before you had sort of made that part of national television, how many contemporary friends of yours, how much do you think people, you know, today, uh, as part of your network, knew that background that you have? That's a, that's a good question. It's funny. It's not information that I hold back or shield or hide in any way, shape, or form. But I, I'll say I think that story uh, was more part of my regular narrative as a kid. I think to know me as a kid was to know that information first and foremost, or it was more prevalent in, in my narrative. And as a grown-up, I forget, you know, and I, I live with it. I see my, I see my body almost uh -huh. every day, you know, I shower. <laughs> and there's the evidence, uh, and it, it has become, through the process of life, kind of just a white noise, uh, which is a blessing, you know, because the, the procedures to correct my issue were very successful. It only became kind of part of my story again when I was becoming a father and getting checked out for life insurance, and suddenly I had a, a renewed concern and sort of curiosity about my own, you know, cardio health an element of that that's really fascinating. So we have conversations with people all the time about the social and emotional journey of, of having a diagnosis as, as a child. And one thing we hear from people is they say, the first question is, you know, physically and medically, am I going to be okay? And then once that feels like it has an answer, whatever that answer is, the next question is how, you know, what role is this going to play in my personal story in life? And, and I think if, besides everything else, aside from your success, et cetera, hearing people, you know, uh, hearing you say that it's not something that necessarily stayed as part of your 
narrative and how you think of yourself and, and how people know you is probably a really powerful idea for a lot of parents and a lot of kids who are going through similar things right now. Yeah, I, I guess that is the case, especially when, especially when that news, when that diagnosis is still on the threshold of being the worst possible news. Mm-hmm. You know, it can, at that juncture of, of it could go one of two ways. The idea that it would vanish and not become the primary dialogue is an exciting idea. I'll tell you something, and this is actually sort of the fire has been kindled a little bit through the process of performing at the Coach Art Gala, where, you know, through, through that performance, I explored some of my personal story to express in the performance I gave for that group. And I was really fired up by that and kind of reminded about that it is a powerful story Absolutely. and it is part of my narrative. And as an artist, I wonder why it's not more prevalent in my persona on stage, you know? Interesting. Uh, it's in, I mean, I, I feel there is a place for it in my work. So let's dig into it and, and take us back a little bit. So I, I talked about the actual diagnosis. Can you talk about what the experience was like for you as a child, how it impacted you, how your childhood was different from other kids? Some nutshell uh, moments, you know, I was born premature and the atrial septal defect was sort of a secondary concern right out of the gate, so to speak, because there was other, my abdominal wall was not fully formed as well like there was a lot of there was underdevelopment in the torso the heart being part of that but there was also this other you know sort of emergency circumstance so they repaired that and and rather than you know dive into the atrial septal correction they sort of let that go to see if i made it through stage one what do you remember so we talk to parents all the time about how they message elements of their child's diagnosis to their child what do you, you talked a little bit about the language that was used, but do you remember at what age you first uh, had a conversation about what was different? And, and do you remember when you became aware of that? Well, there were a lot of doctor's visits. So I think the discussion about, you know, what problems uh, was part of the dialogue from a very early age. I think really the years, like around, probably around eight, you know, the years leading up to uh, when I was 10 and having open heart surgery, because there was a lot of visits and a lot of tests, um, catheters and things like that leading up till, to the decision and, and the necessity to have this major body trauma experience to fix the problem. Again, the dialogue, since I'd survived this traumatic birth, it was always, there was a miracle baby quality to the energy around me. No, it's interesting. To the degree that you think about it and and look back, would you say you have any suggestions or advice for parents who are talking to their kids at six, eight, 10, 12, about having a diagnosis that having gone through it yourself, you would you would uh, have suggestions or advice about. I think kids are very uh, sensitive to the an adult's concerns. To just be really aware of adult fears and adult you know adult concerns because kids read it, they can read it all, and so just being really I guess really sensitive about what younger ears are hearing and how they may hear it and being willing and ready um, to really check in, to really check in about how they fear, feel and how they fear and um, how they process, you know, conversations that, that are going on on the adult level. Because, you know, medicine is very adult. This is, it's life and death and it's big money. 
there's stress on from all those different angles. You know, I remember being in the room and maybe maybe in hindsight, I shouldn't have been in the room when my mother had a conversation with a cardiologist about going the choice to have open heart surgery. So it was two adults talking about it and she had questions. And so I was in that room privy to those questions. And I'm, you know, about nine years old and, you know, they're talking about my body's failure Mm -hmm. and the potential for my body's failure with me present. I don't know if that was probably the best choice. One of the things from having these conversations with folks that I most took away from what you just said is I think people are really thoughtful about what they envision as sort of the bedside moment with a child where they are explaining to them what's going on and whether to use medical terms, like you said, whether to use more terms that they would understand, whether to be overly positive or whether to be really realistic. And so people are really thoughtful about that conversation. But one thing that that I just heard from you is to be really thoughtful about all of the other conversations, not just the words, but the energy, what's happening when you're having a conversation with a doctor that you assume the child might not understand the terms, but is picking up on the energy of that conversation. I think that's really helpful, an idea that, that from the conversations that we've had with a lot of parents, I think that's really helpful for them to be aware of. So you mentioned and, and have alluded to the, the decision to have surgery and, and that obviously being a really uh, large portion of, of your story and journey. And tell us a little bit about what that was like, either the lead up or, or afterwards and, and less of the medical elements of it, but more of how that played into your social and emotional journey. Well, before, with the hole in my heart, my body wasn't developing at a really great pace. You know, I was trying to get some meat to stick on my bones. It was very thin. And then when I had heart surgery and my heart was stronger, I mean, the power of having more oxygenated blood and a system that was working more efficiently, I really, you know, filled in. And uh, so that was a huge difference, you know, sort of not being sort of strong, not being potentially athletic to then kind of switching into this, you know, a healthier body. That was incredible. Going into the having heart surgery, knowing the date was coming, you know, being out of school, that was fifth grade. And I was out of school for a couple of months through the procedure. I remember that the night before guest visitors left and I was alone in the hospital room, knowing that the procedure was the next day. And they gave me um, illustrated booklet to explain in the morning, a nurse will come in and give you some pills and then you'll have uh, IV will be put in. And then, uh, you know, the to talking about the anesthetic and the operating room and what's going to happen with my body. And then the intensive care, like just kind of a children's book explaining the process and knowing that I was a little old for the the mode. 10 is pretty pretty with it. And this was a book for kids. Yeah. But it was I don't have I don't have negative energy in my memory about that. I just right. remember being like, aha, uh-huh, okay, yeah. And this I knew all this stuff, sort of. Uh-huh. I remember my mother was, you know, she was single and working. And so she was a little late getting to the hospital the day of. And I had insane stress about that. I remember stirring in my bed and through slits in my eyes, you know, kind of, there was seven doctors in white coats and clipboards standing around my bed, talking with one another. And I faked that I was asleep 
Like I thought, is this it? Is this time? I'm just going to lay here. I'm just going to play possum, man. I'm playing dead. And they went away. Now, in hindsight, this is just, they're doing the rounds. Right, right. You know? But I, my mom wasn't there, and I was alone, and so I just <sighs> played dead. Interesting. And then I remember uh, when they came in to, they, I wanted them to wait to put in the IV for my mother to be there. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't there yet. And mm-hmm. they, you know, yeah. they're a business. They're, they're doing their thing. And that was, I thought, I thought I was going in and I knew it was a dangerous, there was potential danger, a very routine procedure, but still the little booklet told me they're going to cut sure. my chest open and pry me apart, you know, but that was, I, I remember that, you know, I've, there's some trauma there of like, am I going to do this alone? Am I doing mm-hmm. this alone? I think it's very hard for parents and I, I really feel for the, the parents that you guys interact with on a regular basis because there's no relief when it's everything. I took that responsibility as a kid to, to try to try to relieve that in some way to try to blow away and lift all of that fear and, and all of that suffering. So that, so that was there. And just the power of humor to be able to do that. And whether in your case, it's, the child doing that, you know, in the room or the parent, but that even in the most serious of circumstances that you wouldn't from the outside anticipate there being any humor or need for it or place for it, that it still has the power to alleviate, you know, I think is, is a really powerful idea. Well, cause when we, cause when we laugh, there's hope. Wow. So, even if it feels hopeless, finding a place where we can laugh, release, and and breathe. That's really powerful. The recovery from heart surgery, and I know that there was a moment that ended up being transformative for you that started with a chemistry set. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? A buddy of mine, and this was before having heart surgery, but in fifth grade, my buddy Don, his brother, and he had, there was a, the family had a game closet. Mm-hmm. And going through that game closet and those stacks of games, uh, there was a magic kit. It was collecting dust. And I think a lot of young people get a magic kit at a, at a certain age, six, eight. And that's not the best age to get a magic kit mm-hmm. because magic is hard and it requires paying attention, like to read some of these instructions in these, in these kits, I mean, it might as well be another language because you're asking someone to learn kind of how to function on three levels simultaneously. Hmm. What you're doing for the audience that they can see, and then some sort of secret behind the scenes machination that will make the magic happen. And framing it in a way that's entertaining and makes sense. Basically mm-hmm. storytelling. Mm-hmm. It's really complex. It's very difficult. So I think a lot of kids get a magic kit. They love the idea of, oh, I'd love to do magic. And then the actual in practice, it's very difficult, confusing. And the first handful of attempts often end in failure, which doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. And then you don't want to do it again. Because you don't want to open yourself up to being like, ah, I see it or that didn't work or you know, boo. Okay. So that's, I think that's what happened. I think they, they tried one trick and it was like, 
and it just lived in the closet. But I, for some reason, just thought this was something was going on here. I had a chemistry set that, to me, just smelled like fart. It was <laughs> bad, you know, it was not interesting. Um, it did not pique my curiosity. And I traded with Don. I, he, he was interested in that chemistry set. He liked those test tubes. And so I got the magic kit. I, I traded him for the kit and didn't really, uh, really get into it until I had that two months off from mm -hmm. school and started going through, through that, the, the instruction booklet and learning a couple more of the tricks and then really thinking, wow, magic is, this could be my thing. You know, one of the things that we find at CoachArt is when a child is recovering from something that they have this label of being a sick kid, a child in recovery, et cetera, and that sometimes arts and athletics are a, are a vehicle for uh, changing their, the label that they, that they feel like is assigned to them. Do you feel like magic played a role in your life at that point of changing the label of sure. being a, a child in recovery? I'll tell you this, and this is, I don't know if this is unique to me. I'm sure for me that the label wasn't necessarily a negative thing. If anything, my physical challenges, my medical challenges made me special. And I allowed that, you know, like I noticed, a, I have noticed a pattern in, in my adult life of allowing uh, things to fall apart a little so I can buckle down and heal because healing was a part of my identity and a part of, part of how I did life. I think my interest in magic, when I look back on it, it makes sense to me in that, going back to that word hope, magic, if I could learn these tricks and if I could create a sense of magic existing, then maybe, I would heal too. Like maybe the, the miracle of no longer being sick would also be possible. Um, you've talked about the idea that being broken is not such a bad thing throughout this conversation. And I know that you have a book coming out that's, that's exactly uh, on that. Can you tell us a little bit about that, where it's available, et cetera? Absolutely. It stemmed from a conversation I had with a buddy years ago, uh, on the phone, we were laughing about the idea of Humpty Dumpty and what if Humpty Dumpty wasn't a tragedy, but what if Humpty Dumpty was an inspiration? And I took that and I wrote a poem and I wrote it pretty quick and it came out really great. And I started performing it in my shows. I doing this poem uh, talking about Humpty Dumpty and how he had a dream to look over the wall, but it was forbidden by the king. And so in secret, he builds his ladder and he looks over the wall. And in the morning, the, the, the people of this fairy tale kingdom, they find the pieces at the, at the foot of the wall and, and the news spreads. Someone challenged the wall and the king says, well, the wall won out. This egg is in pieces, you know. And what the king does is takes a photo of these eggshells, this crushed um, character and sends the photo to everybody in the kingdom to prove that we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't build a ladder. We shouldn't try to look over the wall. And what he doesn't realize is in that photo, you can see that 
the there's a piece of egg on top that has a smile and then everybody builds their ladder all the all the fairy tale characters at, at the end of the book are climbing up to to see what humpty saw so i had my my good buddy from college nathan christopher is an incredible artist and he illustrated this book it took him five years to illustrate and so i self-published it greg just to just to bring to shows and january 7th this will be on bookshelves all over the world and you can pre-order it now through amazon barnes and noble my website standupmagician.com has a link to the Penguin website, which has a link to all the outlets that are carrying uh, the pre-order. Very excited about this book, very proud of it. It's, it's amazing as uh, someone who performs on stage for a living, and so when I perform, that's it, it's gone. And I'm glad it does, because for folks who have listened to this interview, and, and by the way, I wanna thank you so much for both what you did at the gala, and you know we didn't get into the details of that, uh, but that was so amazing. But I also want to thank you uh, so much for joining us today on on the upbeat, and just how incredibly thoughtful you are and and were in this conversation about your experience as a child. You know what what you've overcome, and and I think that's a huge inspiration and a lot to chew on for parents. And and I can't imagine that any parent who of a child with a chronic illness listening wouldn't want to get their hands on a copy of Humpty Dumpty lived near a wall. And so I hope that they uh, run out and, and get one either in stores or, or online today and uh, check out more of your work uh, at standupmagician.com. Well, I appreciate those words. Thank you. Absolutely. You can find more content like this at theupbeat.coachart.org, where we have blog posts, podcasts, and YouTube clips, as well as a Facebook group that you can join and share your own helpful advice with other families who are dealing with social and emotional questions about kids going through chronic illness. So we hope to see you there. Thanks so much.